The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to a very refreshing hour of business talk. This is Transforming Your Business with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. You'll hear from the innovators who know how to use game-changing technologies and business strategies to shake up the status quo in your company's future and help your organization move in exciting new directions. Now, here's your host and moderator, Bonnie D. Graham. Welcome, welcome, welcome. And if you want to run with the Game Changers, you're absolutely in the right place. This is Transforming Your Business with Game Changers Radio, presented by SAP. If you're keeping track, this is episode number three in one of our newest series. We are live today on Tuesday, March 10th, 2015. Interesting topic. Let's get started. Excuse me. The buzz is human capital. According to Deloitte's 2015 Global Human Capital Trends Survey, which, by the way, reached 3,300 organizations in 106 countries. That's a lot of people talking to them. Employee engagement and culture issues have risen to become the number one challenges facing companies around the world. Clearly, the survey was very global. I'm going to clear my throat. <clears throat> Apologies. The report explores 10 major trends that reflect four major themes for 2015. The themes are leading, engaging, reinventing, and reimagining. A lot of interesting words in there. We've spoken many times about leading and engaging on our HR Trends with Game Changers series here on the Business Channel over the years. We're going to cover this in more depth today. So why is this all happening? What's going on in the world? Well, the economy is growing. That's good news. And skills have become more specialized. And guess what? Fewer people have that skills, that means there's a shortage and there's more global competition for top talent. Companies that are your competition are looking for the same people. Yes, and they might be offering them a better package. Who knows? So why is this happening on another level? Because too few organizations are using talent analytics and they're not strengthening their leadership pipeline. People move on. They change. Talent is mobile today. Their eyes are always open for the NBT, the next big thing in terms of a job, a career move, a push to challenge them. And if you don't have leaders in that pipeline, whoops, you're going to have an empty spot there. So this is impacting business leaders at all levels of companies, not just HR. And they're realizing the culture, engagement, leadership, development, and retention, that big R word, must become their top priorities. Wouldn't you love to know the best practices the companies that are successful are using so that you can prepare your organization and your talent for the future? And by the way, the future could be five minutes away. We have a panel of experts today. We've picked two top speakers on this topic, two top thought leaders. And let me introduce the first one. He's Ben Dollar. How appropriate. A principal and partner in Deloitte's manufacturing practice. And Ben has sent me a quote from Michael Jordan. I think this is Michael Jordan's first time on SAP Radio, and I know it's Ben Dollars. Here's the quote. Talent wins games, but teamwork and intelligence win championships. Ben Dollar, welcome. How are you today? I'm doing well. Thank you. 
Thank you so much for joining me. Love the quote from Michael Jordan. Talk to me. How does this relate to our talent ecosystem? What's going on with best practices? Let's go. Ben, talk to me. Let me start by saying that uh, Michael Jordan broke my heart every year that he played. I grew up a New York Knicks fan, so it was an annual occurrence to watch him uh, crush my my Knicks in the playoffs. So it's bittersweet for me to quote him here. But when I see that quote, I believe Michael Jordan almost got to a definition of talent management without intending to. Um, He's talking about uh, the ability of a team to put together the right components and win. So if you, if you think of those Chicago Bulls, they focused on a critical workforce segment. They looked at Jordan and Pippen as the anchors of the team, but then they plugged in specific skills around Jordan and Pippen. So they had guys like Steve Kerr and uh, Luke Longley, Will Perdue, Dennis Rodman, who had shooting skills, rebounding skills that complemented that core. It was essentially their way of dealing with a talent shortage, which was imposed by a salary cap. So they were able to take a core competency, complement it in a way that made not only the team better, but the individual players better. And I think that is really the challenge that faces companies today. Very interesting. Very interesting, Ben. I just learned a lot from you about sports. I'm, I'm not into it the way you are. But very interesting uh, taking sports as a, not even a metaphor, but as a real-life example of what's going on in companies. Do you think executives think in those terms? Do you think uh, other people share your view that if you look at how sports works, you can see a model for doing the right thing in terms of supplementing your talent, finding ways to plug those holes? What's your observation? Well, I, I think in general, metaphors are a great way to understand complexity. And when we get to trying to understand managing a workforce of 20,000 people, getting to a more simple metaphor where we're talking about managing a workforce of 10 or 12 people like an NBA team is absolutely a good way to do it. I've certainly talked with executives about the concept of change management um, going from a uh, running offense to a passing offense in Texas. Every every Texan parent who has kids who play football uh, <laughs> is very invested in what type of offense the team runs. So I think starting small with something that people have kind of an emotional and day-to-day connection to is a great way to understand the bigger problems. So I am a huge fan of sports metaphors, yes. And, and interesting, Ben, we've uh, spoken, well, we now have a new show on SAP Game Changers Radio, a new series called Game Changing Women. But when we were doing the HR Trend Series, which I referenced before in my opening, uh, we talked about women in leadership roles and, and the changing culture and how things still need to change a lot. And I remember reading somewhere, Ben, that women who are part of sports as part of their education – women whose parents put them into, as girls put them into, whatever sports were available in their school, their schoolyard, their camp, whatever it was, those women had an edge in ascending to leadership roles because they understood how teams work. Do you agree with that? Have you observed that? I absolutely agree with it. And I think male or female, being able to be a part of the dynamic that enables a a group of individuals to come together and work well uh, a way of different people taking on different leadership roles given situations. I think it's an, an invaluable experience. So uh, absolutely, yes. Thank you. Good. That's advice for all the parents out there. There you go. You've heard it from Ben Dollar and from Bonnie D. Graham. Now let me bring on our second panelist. We just have two panelists today, but they have so much to say. We're going to be able to fill this hour. My second guest is Arun Srinivasan. He is a vice president of product marketing and strategy for Field Glass at SAP. And Arun is taking us way back in time to the sonnets of John Milton. And the name of this particular sonnet is On His Blindness. And here's the 
quote from John Milton, a very familiar quote. They also serve who only stand and wait. I've probably heard that a thousand times. Arun Srinivasan, welcome to Game Changers Radio. How are you today? Thank you, Bonnie. I'm doing well. So talk to me about this quote. How does this apply to our talent ecosystem and bringing John Milton, who has never been on SAP radio before, Arun, so I'm sure he's very honored in absentia. How does this relate to our topic of the modern talent ecosystem? All right. So before I touch on that, I wanted to uh, first say hello to Ben and also uh, note that I'm based in Chicago. And in fact, just yesterday, I uh, took my son to uh, the tryouts at the Bulls Sox Academy, so all the names he mentioned uh, were, were very, very familiar to me. Outstanding, um, Arun. So you, you, your basketball team beats me up in the playoffs for, for years, and now you uh, you beat me with a better cultural reference on SAP Radio. <laughs> I knew I liked the both of you. This is this is going to be good. Okay, Arun, this is your your quote time. Talk to us. All right. So to me, uh, Milton's words. Uh, serve as a, as a strong reminder today that talent comes in many forms, and especially when we start thinking of talent management organizations, the knee-jerk reaction for organizations is to start thinking about acquiring top talent, and, and that is important, but the challenge with that line of thinking is that it leads individuals and organizations to think that talent is always a zero-sum game. And um, really, there is only one way to do it. And, but the reality is that talent comes in many forms, and, organi- and organizations are being challenged in today's work environment to think differently about talent and what talent do they need, where do they acquire the talent from, how do they get work done, etc. And it's in this context that I felt it was relevant to think of Milton's sonnet in general and, and the quote that, uh, uh, that you just referred to, and the sonnet, to me, the sonnet reminds us that we operate in a constraint-based world. That's, that's also something important. And, and also it encourages us to reconsider what talent really means to our organization, given our constraints, our culture, uh, our location, and our business, before we embark on this uh, pursuit to build a better talent ecosystem. Thank you, Arun. Very, very interesting. Uh, sports is a metaphor. Certainly, we can weave that in and out of the conversation during the rest of the show. Uh, Arun, what have you observed in terms of uh, sports? I'm sorry, sports. I've got it on my brain now. In terms of uh, talent analytics, uh, in terms of our companies that you see using the tools that are out there now in the best way to strengthen their pipeline, to strengthen employee engagement, to understand who is working for them, what are the chances they're going to stay? How do you strengthen these employees' roles in the company? How do you grow them? What do you see? Just a, a quick overview of analytics. Any thoughts? Sure. So in, I have a contradictory uh, opinion on, on this topic because uh, mm-hmm. I, I think companies have started looking at this space and they have started using some tools, but the trap that they often fall into is that they feel that the tool is going to is going to solve their problem or it's going to give them the answers. And the uh-huh. tool often is an indicator, but really the, the answers lie within, and it, it points in a certain direction, and somebody has to go peel the different layers of the onion to figure out what's really going on in terms of what talent you have in-house, what's missing, what do you need tomorrow, and so on. So, yes, I do see that the tools are gradually being adopted, but I'm still – concerned that uh, it's being uh, it's being it's not being used effectively 
Okay, very good point. Ben, before I ask you what's in your cup today, because this is part of our ecosystem of Coffee Break with Game Changers, any comments on what Arunja shared with us regarding analytics for talent? I think most companies have a long way to go with analytics before they are really able to capitalize on the value they could have. Three out of four respondents in our survey rated analytics as important or very important, but if we compare that data to last year, the capability around analytics has not actually improved all that much. So I, I agree with Arun that companies are investing in systems and starting to develop processes, but I, I think maybe it is over-reliance on technology itself, but I, I think that there is still a lot of room for improvement in actually making gains and, and achieving business goals from using workforce analytics. Thank you. I, I think what we're going to be offering our listeners today is not just pie in the sky, but if you have tools, how do you use them better? Best practices that are real, that are tangible, that will give you an edge. So I'm counting on that from Ben Dollar and Arun Srinivasan. Guess what? It's time for me to ask a very important question. Ben Dollar, is there anything interesting in your cup right now, or what do you plan to drink after the show? So I don't know how interesting it is, and maybe I'm uh, overdoing the sports theme, but uh, my, my cup contains muscle milk right now, which is a slightly caffeinated protein shake and uh, nutritional supplement. It uh, contributes to health, which I think is key to emotional well-being and work effectiveness. Um, I, I like to lift weights and, and run and keep myself in shape, and maybe if I drink enough muscle milk, I can tear a license plate in half someday. <laughs> Okay, now we know Ben Dollar's goals. What is muscle milk? What does it look like? What does it taste like? Where do you buy it? Oh, you can buy it anywhere. Uh, you can buy it at a like drugstore or a grocery store. It um, it tastes sort of like a chocolate milkshake, but uh, the label proudly proclaims it contains no milk, so it's an ironic title. Okay, we'll go with that. I have to take a look for it. Thank you very much. And Arun Srinivasan, what are you drinking right now, or what do you plan to drink after the show? Okay, so I'm uh, so I'm into pressed juices these days, and I'm I'm drinking a green raw juice with I'm going to read this. It's uh, celery, collards, parsley, ginger, lemon, and a Granny Smith apple. Oh. Uh, it, these these juices are are a favorite of mine these days, and and I'm a I'm a fan of any cold pressed juice, so red green with red with beets, or it's green. Um, I'm not a big breakfast person myself, but uh, something like this, it, it helps me. It serves as a good substitute to keep me going until lunchtime. Very nice. We used to call that caffeine. Now we call it something else. <laughs> I'm sorry. just came to mind. I want to do a shout-out. We've got some tweeters here joining us on the party. We've got Dean Pappas, uh, D-E-A-N-P-A-P-P-S underscore two. And he was here with us on another show recently. Dean, nice to see you back. A lot of tweets coming from Dean. And Lindsay N. Nelson put that all together. She is one of my colleagues at SAP who's one of the sponsors of this series. And a shout-out also to Becky Weber who sponsors the series. Uh, you know what, Ben and Arun, they only let me have water on, co- on coffee break with Game Changers radio show days. I just don't need the extra caffeine kick, so you'll find out why. Guess what? We're talking about managing your talent ecosystem, best practices. A lot of things are keeping executives awake, leaders at all levels of companies today, wondering about their leadership pipeline, wondering about company culture, which we haven't really talked about too much, wondering about where their next top talent is coming from and what they're going to have to pay to get them and keep them. That brings up the word retention as well. Talent is more specialized, skills are more in demand, and there is hot global competition for the best of the best. Will your company get 
tool you need to run and thrive and survive and succeed in the future. We're going to answer a lot of those questions here on Transforming Your Business with Game Changers Radio, presented by SAP. I'm Bonnie D. Graham, and I plan to still be me after the break, so don't even think of touching that mouse, that app, that dial. When we come back, 30-minute roundtable, we're going to put Ben Dollar and Arun Trinavas into hard work, and let's see what we can all get from the great best practices they are having in store for us. We'll be right back. Brad out. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. We are witnessing a monumental shift in the way work and business are done. Leaders are looking to radically simplify their organizations while simultaneously engaging and empowering employees to achieve more. These leaders are also seeking to leverage exciting innovations born from interactions between people, businesses, and things in our newly responsive and intelligent, hyper-connected, networked global economy. Join our experts as they analyze and discuss how leaders and their teams can help shape the future of change. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Transforming Your Business with Game Changers, presented by SAP. Email your comments and questions to bonnie.d.gram at sap.com. And you're invited to tweet during and after the live show using Twitter hashtag SAPRADIO. Now, let's get back to Transforming Your Business with Game Changers. Welcome back. I'm speaking today with Ben Dollar, a principal and partner in Deloitte's manufacturing practice, and Arun Trinavasan, a vice president of product marketing and strategy for Field Glass at SAP. And we're talking about managing your talent ecosystem, best practices. We're going to kick off our roundtable with some notes from Ben Dollar here. Ben says, softer areas such as culture and engagement, leadership and development have become urgent priorities. Ben, is this keeping executives, leaders at all levels awake in companies of every size? Are we just talking about what I call the top biggest, most mature behemoth companies? Are we talking down into the SMB, small to mid-sized business levels? Who, who are we addressing here? And why don't you expand on what the softer areas mean? Go ahead, Ben. Sure. So in the first part of your question, I believe in our research supports the idea that this is an issue for companies of all sizes. So those survey respondents that you mentioned at, at the beginning of, of the show uh, represent companies of, of a pretty broad range of sizes. So this is not isolated to huge companies only or, or small companies only. The research we did this year shows that the largest gap in uh, urgency versus capability is in culture and engagement with leadership and learning and development close behind. I, I think these are all really closely related things because companies that are trying to create a performance culture, an engaging culture, a place where people are excited to work and energized to work and are able to translate that into increased productivity is a huge advantage for anyone. The challenge is, with all of the different tools and all the different ways of doing that, uh, it, it's difficult to zero in on what the right actions are. I think this is also compounded by the fact that we have what we would describe as almost a sort of naked organization. So we have social media, we have Glassdoor, we have all sorts of ways that 
company culture becomes more public than it ever has been before, which creates an environment where employees are able to know more about companies and shape the culture of the companies that they're engaging with. So I, I think we're in an unprecedented area in terms of culture and engagement. Ben, when did this all change? Is this in the past 10 years, the past 20 years, the past three years? When did this transparency, what you so aptly call the naked organization, when did this really start to emerge where it was something we could talk about and say, yes, this is happening all over the place? I don't, that's a good question. I don't think I can pick a point in time to say that, but I think that the emergence of social media and, and even just ability to post stuff on the web, so going back five, ten years, I think mm-hmm. it's been a, a gradual sort of um, progression toward that. I think right now, though, where everybody is tweeting, everybody is using handheld devices. My, my three-year-old daughter, uh, when she wants you to get out of the way, tries to swipe you away like you're a page that she doesn't want to look at <laughs> on an iPad. Um, so I, I think that just the ubiquity and the penetration of all those devices and all those ways to share information really over the past few years has created a a tremendous amount of transparency, but I don't think you can pick a a point in time. Okay, so it has evolved. It has emerged, and it's probably still still growing as a trend. Arun Srinivasan at Fieldglass, talk to us. Thoughts on what Ben has introduced here? I I agree with Ben, and I I love the the notion of of a naked uh, organization in, in terms of its culture and to me, what that really means is that uh, really there is no there is no way to fake it. There is only one culture. How you interact with your customers, your partners, with your employees, uh, it, it's it, it's all transparent. And again, Ben's references to Glassdoor and other uh, social media sites just enforce that that there is just one way to do things. And the other thing that's important and it's related to that is is when we start thinking about what does culture really mean, and then there are there are some softer aspects of culture. At, uh, ultimately, having now having worked in smaller organizations for for most of my career, I feel culture re- relates back to the core values of the organization. So how you how, how the leadership and how the, the various team members act and behave on a day-to-day basis, that's what really builds the culture. And then as the organization grows, you need to, uh, in a structured way, you need to uh, share that with the organization and and, and enforce those messages. Thank you. Ben, any comments on what Arun added? I think the point around authenticity is really key, that when, when you see companies or even people trying to adopt cultural attributes which are not really theirs, it it looks sort of strained and and fake. Uh, One of the best ways I I have heard culture summed up is it's the way we do things around here. And companies that are able to engage employees in that and get get people bought into the way we do things around here are the most effective. And the ability of employees to talk openly and, and sort of publish the cultures of the companies that they work in and the way that they do things there has has really created a, a fascinating level of engagement between employees and organizations. It's now very public. 
Okay, I have a question for both of you. As companies become globalized and more and more companies are adding subsidiaries, each subsidiary in its own country, its own city, may have a very different culture from the parent company. And you start sending consultants or leaders around to visit the new acquisition, the new stepchild, we might say, or the new cousin in another country, and they observe a very different mindset, a very different way of working. How we do things here has nothing to do with how we do things at home, and I put a quotes around around at home, meaning in the home office in the parent company uh, culture existence. How do companies? What it would be a best practice for? How do you absorb company into your main company and acknowledge, appreciate, honor the local culture, and not try to change it to the point where you destroy? This is how we work. Any thoughts on that, Ben? I think it's got to be a very organic process, and the goal mm-hmm. should be really bringing together the, the best of both. So we talk about the way we do things around here. Any company needs to have at least a fundamentally shared set of values. I think Arun hit on that when he was talking earlier about the culture concept. But as companies come together, acquisitions happen, the most powerful combinations are those that can, can bring strong cultures together. So if you have big companies that may have traditionally been sort of slow-moving that are trying to enter new markets or trying to adopt new technologies, they may be able to acquire or engage with smaller companies that may be much more agile or much more innovative. And it may be challenging, but it's a, a wonderful thing for them to try to bring those attributes in. So bring some of that agility or the spirit of innovation in and, and, and mix things up. The challenge is making sure that you don't lose your, your core values and wind up with something that's sort of uh, a set of inconsistent or disjointed cultures. Mm-hmm. Very, very good point. Arun, thoughts on this? I agree with Ben. And going back to core value and the reference you made, uh, Bonnie, to uh, them being cousins, I always mm-hmm. think of it as a, an extended family. Mm-hmm. And if you think of the extended family, there are some core values that you share with the family. So in the context of a business, there may be a global standard that you share across the different business units, regardless of where they are based. And at the same time, it's, the standard is flexible enough that it uh, it recognizes that there are local needs, that, that uh, there may be guidelines, there may be laws, there may be cultural practices, whatever the case may be. Those need to be accommodated in, in that global framework. And so, again, that goes back to this notion of an extended family. It's, it's one family tree. Uh, they're, they're different business units within that tree. They have their own characteristics, but the fundamental values they share uh, are common. Great point. And Arun, that is a perfect segue into where I'm going to go. I'm looking at your notes now, and I think we have a good place to go, talking about the extended family concept. You told me before the show, the definition of contingent workers has changed. You referenced a study by Arden Partners who predict that by the end of 2017, which is just a little over two and a half years away, almost 45% of the world's total workforce will be comprised of contingent workers, and that includes independent contractors, freelancers, and SOW, Statement of Work-Based Labor. Why don't we go there and, and see how does this relate to our extended family, and what is it doing to change the labor ecosystem, the talent ecosystem? Arun? Love the segue there. Um, Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> the, traditionally, contingent workers have been associated with, uh, the, the, with temporary workers who are employed part-time. 
and and really that that definition has expanded over the last uh, 10 years or so to include the use of uh, contingent workers uh, beyond admin clerical and and light industrial work to to different parts of the enterprise and uh, today we see contingent workers engaged in a wide range of functions and they could be in in IT, in, in some R&D functions, uh, you see scientists and doctors. It could be in marketing, legal, mm-hmm. finance, HR, and so on. And, and the definition has, is, has evolved to a point that practically every non-employee who is serving the organization is in some way, shape, or form a contingent worker. They could be on-site, off-site, offshore, nearshore, could be in a back office function, or they could be in a revenue generating front office function. They are all part of that that uh, contingent of, of your contingent workforce and part of that extended family that you that you referenced. Um, what's interesting is that so you refer to the Arden study, and today when we are interacting with clients in, in different verticals, we see anywhere from 30 to 50 percent of the total workforce in our organization is contingent as per the definition that I just shared. And, mm-hmm. and in, in the context of that fact, the, the most important thing here is that organizations today are spending most of their time and energy thinking about their, their, their full-time employees or their payroll employees. And the fact is that they have the same number of external contingent workers and and really the problem that's being posed to organization is how do you use them effectively and really to to solve the talent ecosystem problem you need to think of that problem of the of the workforce in its totality okay ben thoughts contingent workforce yeah so 34% of all workers in the united states are contract workers and more than half of the people who answered our survey say that they will have an increasing need for contingent workers over the next three to five years. So this is, this is something that's very real. And this is where we start to think about the concept of a talent ecosystem where, as it used to be, it was overwhelmingly balance sheet employees and a few contractors. Now we're looking at companies that have certainly a, a share of balance sheet employees, but that contractors, consultants, partners, freelancers are all becoming a a part of that talent ecosystem and making their own types of contributions. To tie this back to my my sports metaphor at the beginning, Mm -hmm. you think of of players that have a specialty like Steve Kerr was a great three-point shooter. Um, You can rotate people like that in when they're needed, where you're building around a certain core competency. And, And for companies now, the ability to have flexibility and agility, um, be able to change course quickly is really enhanced by being able to plug in and, and add and, and reduce when they need to without, uh, without actually moving their balance sheet employees up and down dramatically. Okay. I have a question for both of you, whoever wants to answer it. What is the difference between an independent contractor and a freelancer, and we can add an SOW-based labor person. How do you? What are the the fine lines? Is it is it how long you employ them? Is it uh, a contract or not contract? Is it uh, their skill set or where they fit into the the pecking order in your organization? Uh, ben or Arun, who wants to help with that? Let Let me take a stab at that first, um, please, if I may. Uh, yes. The 
as the independent contractor, strictly speaking, at least in the United States, is uh, as, as someone who files the uh, 1099 form and they do their taxes. So mm-hmm. they are uh, they are incorporated, and it typically is an individual who is has their own. They essentially they are running their own business, so they're serving as a business. And so tech, there is a technical definition for it. There are some IRS rules that govern, you know, who is an an I see an independent contractor and who isn't. A freelancer roughly equates to uh, an an independent contractor, uh, but uh, that the term is used uh, more loosely, and and, uh, and and so you see that term being used uh, globally today. So anybody who is uh, uh, available to perform a certain function. And typically, they're working on a project, and they're not tied to any particular firm. They uh, call themselves a freelancer. It gets used more in the context of smaller projects, and also in uh, in those small to mid-sized businesses tend to use freelancers a lot more. In terms of an SOW or a project-based service, Essentially, any consulting engagement that's governed by a statement of work or an SOW falls under that umbrella, and most of the work that's done for a corporation today is, is, is falls under that umbrella. Globally, that market, in terms of the spend annually on statement of work-based services, that market is uh, in the $1.5 trillion range. Okay. I know there's a famous case of how did Microsoft treat its independent contractors versus uh, freelancers. I'm looking at a Reuters report from April 1st, 2009 and March 31st, 2009. Don't let what happened to Microsoft happen to you. Since we're talking about best practices, I don't want to get into a legal discussion here, but either Ben Dollar or Arun Srinivasan or, or both of you, would you like to comment on how those lines can get fuzzy and become a not best practice? Any thoughts? Yeah, I think one of the things that that sort of ties together a few of the themes today with transparency and the ability of um, employees to make what happens in their company more public and and that sort of glass door effect, um, it it really forces the type of collaboration that happens within a a company to be uh, more effective. So I think the most important thing is remembering that now employees, whether they are balance sheet employees or contractors, uh, whatever they are, are are also kind of customers of a company. So engaging them effectively and making sure that they are um, all engaged in the right way for what they're doing is especially important. Um, I I think if you go and and look at the way that contractors and and that – balance sheet employees and and partners are engaged in different companies, you will see a a much more concerted effort to come up with a way of making them all clearly part of the same team and clearly defined roles um, while maintaining different types of governance um, and different types of of management behind the scenes for each type. So I think engagement is key and keeping in mind that now everyone in your ecosystem is is not only an employee but also kind of a customer. Mm -hmm. Arun, thoughts? So going back to your the case that you referred to, really it comes down to tenure and dependency, and I refer to some IRS rules around the definition of an IC or an independent contractor. And just in in uh, in simple terms, what it really means is if you are an independent contractor, 
then you cannot be reliant on just one business for all your income. Technically, you're independent. And so if you are reliant on one business for for most or all your income for a prolonged period of time, then the the IRS looks at it more as an employee, looks at you as more of an employee, and then the employer technically has to pay taxes and other benefits for that individual. And that's where the 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 issue comes in, and that's why corporations today are uh, close are, are are closely screening uh, independent contractors. Now, what the message that uh, just to be clear, the message here is not that you should somehow avoid uh, independent contractors. In fact, you should engage them where it makes sense. It's just that you should understand who they are, and if you're in, and then you should be engaging them the right way. Thank you. I'm uh, Ben, I'm thinking of a relationship metaphor, not a sports metaphor on this one, and Arun. I'm thinking that when you meet people and you start to date, you're just somebody they see maybe Friday night for a movie. But when you move it to the next level, there might be a, we used to call it going steady. I think the two of you were too young to remember that, uh, going steady. And then maybe if you're lucky, it moves to the engagement, which would be a ring on a finger or a ring on a chain around the neck if you're very young, and then marriage. And I'm wondering if that's the way employees feel when somebody says, we don't want you full-time, we'd love to have you as an IC for a special project for six months, and that IC is sitting there saying, oh, I wonder if they're going to make me an inside employee. That's what happened to me. I was hired as a as a, as a uh, contractor for six months by SAP, and in six months they converted me to full-time inside employee. So there was always that, that wondering, am I good enough to be a full-time employee? Do you think that mindset is part of the engagement question? Uh, ben or Arun, I just want to cover this quickly because I have another place I want to take the conversation. Ben, thoughts on the employee mindset of being included in the real family versus just the Friday night date? So, so I'm like you. Deloitte uh, took me for a test drive as a contractor before they hired me um, <laughs> 11 years ago. Uh, I, I think that does enter into it, and I think that companies are are more and more seeing the opportunity to um, engage employees on that temporary basis before deciding to bring them on mm-hmm. full-time. Um, on the other hand, I think that there, there is an increasing number of people out there and an increasing number of, of smaller businesses out there that are seeing the opportunity to really move around and, and plug in to fill a variety of needs. So I think on the one it depends what you want as an employer, what type of customer you are, but I think there's more of an opportunity right now to to really do something fruitful by plugging in in, in a, a number of different companies or a number of different contexts. So maybe not, not everybody wants to go steady. Uh, thank you very much for indulging me. Arun, thoughts on this metaphor? Yeah, I, I echo... Uh... Ben's comments and that not everybody wants to go steady, especially if you think about it from a millennial's perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're they're looking at other factors too. So things have changed uh, culturally. Things have changed, you know, from an economic perspective. So they're looking at other factors too. The the other interesting uh, statistic here is that in many organizations, and this this varies by function, but. Often for a given role, the average uh, tenure for, quote-unquote, a full-time employee is anywhere from two to three years. Mm. And uh, if you consider that, then there isn't a huge difference between a consultant who is brought in for a long-running project and your, your quote, full-time employee. Excellent point. Excellent point. I want to go in a slightly different direction. I'm looking at Ben's notes, and Ben, you said, let's talk about learning and development. The percentage of companies rating learning and development as very important 
to their talent ecosystem tripled last year. But you comment from the Deloitte study, even as the importance of this issue rose, the readiness to address it went down. Only 40% of respondents rated their organizations as, quote, ready or very ready in learning and development in 2015 compared to 75% in 2014. How could it drop so precipitously, Ben? What do you observe? One thing that I think is driving it is, as everyone knows, there is a tremendous talent shortage in the U.S., especially around STEM, but increasingly around production employees as well. So companies are are more than ever before up against this challenge of having the right people who know how to do the right things. It, It is generally agreed upon by the majority of executives that the best way of creating those skills is through training programs. So there's more pressure to be able to do that effectively. Right now, we're seeing a lot of changes in the learning and development space. So uh, using more social media, immersive learning, gamification, there's a, a, a really broad set of new things that can enable companies to develop the capabilities of their people. And I think the challenge that I'm seeing is a lot of companies have learning programs, they have traditional training programs, but they have not been able to effectively sort of marry up the training that they offer and the development that they offer to specifically address the skills that they need. So I would say, long-winded answer to your question, but there is increasing level of demand and a, a more complex way of meeting that than there's ever been. Thank you. Arun, thoughts on this? So very quickly, I, I agree with Ben that it is the um, the organization has to create the, the right learning environment, so they have they have to uh, uh, provide that infrastructure. But increasingly, uh, I feel that it's the individual's responsibility to make sure that they are learning actively. And, and uh, this is what we're seeing at the school level, at the college level with the open learning systems, and this is bleeding into the workplace also. So, yes, absolutely the organization has to make sure that they that, that they create the right environment and they foster learning, but ultimately the individual shouldn't be expecting to be marched into a classroom and said, okay, here are the skills that you need for the next three years. The individual has to uh, proactively be reaching out and, and developing their talent. I think there's a sort of tension between what the objective of the individual and the objective of the, the company are that can be very powerful if it's used in the right way. And, and so what I mean by that, a, a good friend of mine uh, has used the term the Starbucksification of learning, meaning <laughs> people learn now like they go to Starbucks. You know, I may get a black coffee, somebody else may get a latte, someone else may get uh, a yogurt. And so to make learning experiences available to employees in a way that engages them while making sure that those experiences are aligned with the business objectives that a company is trying to achieve is the challenge, and getting that right is extremely powerful. Thank you. I was going to ask about, uh, we, we've spoken many times on various Game Changers radio shows that currently we have, I've been told, five different generations working metaphorically side by side in the workforce. So we've explored the theme that learning has to be in different flavors to meet the needs and the styles and the culture of those different generations of employees. So giving somebody gamification of a learning project might work great for millennials and younger employees, whereas older ones might find it 
that it trivializes or that it just doesn't work for their learning style. So culture and learning have to go hand in hand, I would think. But I want to go to one more area in, in our notes here before we go to a break and move into the predictions round. Arun Srinivasan, I'm looking at your notes here, and I, I see something very interesting I don't think we've covered yet. You say branding matters when it comes to attracting talent, including the external talent supply chain. So uh, I know this is part of the, the online culture, the glass door, the transparency, what Ben called through the, the Deloitte study, the naked organization. What are employees looking for today, whether they're ICs, they're freelancers, they're SOW-based labor, or they're inside full-time uh, on-the-books employees? What are they looking for in terms of branding that will talk to them and say, I want to be part of this company? What do you observe? So, so I think on that topic, it's becoming uh, increasingly challenging to, especially in, in certain industries like the one that I work most in, in manufacturing, to uh, get younger people excited about coming into to a company. Um, I don't know that there is a specific thing that everyone is looking for, but I think that the, the best way for companies to try to create that supply of talent out there is to really demonstrate um, what makes their company exciting and, and what makes the values of their company a place you'd really want to work. So um, for years we talked about the Google effect, that everybody wanted to go and and work for Google because it was a, a really cool place to work and a progressive culture and that companies that were perceived as sort of more old school were lagging behind. The key is to really be able to show not only that whatever the company is, you're going to be able to work on, on cool things. So if you're manufacturing highly engineered products or if you are working with complex financial products, that there is interesting subject matter. But I think also focusing on the value and the way that you're able to serve customers in an exciting way. I think that's that's the way you've got to sort of sell the brand. Now, I think with millennials especially, there's more of an interest in mobility, more of an interest in sort of quick opportunities rather than planning to go work somewhere for the long haul. And I think that's a challenging thing for companies to be able to, to figure out. There are a lot of them out there that are used to people coming and, and planning to work there for 20 years. And as we've talked about the ecosystem, not everybody works somewhere for 20 years anymore. So it's really changing. So talk to me. What do you think? This was one of your notes on branding matters. What do, what do you observe in terms of uh, whose job is it? Let, let me put this on the table. Whose job is it to create the branding that will attract the talent that the company needs to enforce, reinforce, and shore up their talent ecosystem? Whose job is that? So let me let me share uh Two, two things there. So one is on whose job it is. I feel it is everybody's job. It's no longer just HR's job or marketing's job or the talent management team's job. It's not, you know, that one particular, it's not the CEO's job. It's everybody's job. And what we, what that translates into really is authenticity. And this was the, the, the your original question is, you know, what is it about about the brand that attracts people? And Ben referenced uh, Google, and earlier Ben also mentioned that um, you know many of the employees are also customers, so they they have a feel for who you are, and and they organizations today when they think about branding, they want to translate. They're trying to translate everyday work into something more meaningful and try to communicate how, as being part of this organization, how you're going to make a difference in in this world, and especially from from a millennial's perspective, that is very attractive. 
One, one other point that I wanted to note here is that mm-hmm. as you're uh, attracting talent, you're recruiting, you're interviewing, you're shortlisting, and, and selecting and rejecting, what's important mm-hmm. to keep in mind is that a candidate who's rejected many times is not a bad candidate. Many times it's just that you had one open position and you had five great candidates or three great candidates and you worked really hard to pick that one candidate you love. And so the, the silver medalist, so to speak, or, or the bronze medalist is also important. And, and their experience as a, as a rejected candidate is also key to the brand. I think this is also a point where workforce analytics has a really strong application because there's an opportunity to use analytics to identify characteristics of people who are, are likely to be very engaged by and, and very successful in an organization. So in many cases, you will find counterintuitive combinations of things. So you might find that you know, liberal arts graduates do very well in engineering companies, right, where we would tend to expect only engineers to do well in engineering companies. Um, but being able to use analytics to identify the less obvious sources of talent in a way that creates a lot of engagement, I think, is a really exciting opportunity for the future. Okay. Question for both of you. When it comes to this branding, um, does it have to have different flavors for different employees to attract? That's number one question. Number two, I completely forgot my – oh, yes. Okay. Can a company successfully get branded in terms of attracting talent if, and going back to what we just discussed, you have five superb candidates for a role, but you only have one place on the balance sheet for one employee? What if your company said, well, we can divide up a project into smaller chunks, we can turn these full-time applicants, these wannabe full-time employees, into contractors into freelancers we can go out and part of our brand is hey you didn't make the cut but we'd love to have you as part of this project and is that something that a company would want to do uh, first Ben then Arun would you want to get known as the company that said we have room for everybody but not on a full-time basis so we'll create a project for you I don't know talk to me Ben so I think the brand would be a little different from that I, I think Certainly having a brand that, that indicates that you are hiring the best and the brightest and you're very selective is, is something mm-hmm. that is going to make people want to work there. I think that's a, a powerful thing. I okay. think given the idea of being able to bring in more candidates than you, you have room for on the balance sheet is just a competitive advantage because if, if you only got room for one but you want five and you mm-hmm. can find room for all five to do something – Maybe you grow, maybe you have unexpected areas you could plug them in. I think just from a practical standpoint, um, being able to bring bring those people in and give them more opportunity is, is going to give you a competitive advantage and, and more flexibility. Okay. Arun, thoughts on that? The idea you mentioned of engaging uh, the, the extended talent pool is a very strong idea, and some progressive hmm. companies are already using this. And essentially what they do is that for the the so-called rejected candidates, they're forming mm-hmm. a talent pool and saying that maybe I, I don't have a need for uh, you as, as a consultant or as, as an employee, but I'm going to share my thoughts with my peers within the company who may be looking for a consultant or an employee today. And so I, with your permission, 
they would say, hey, can I uh, put your name on that list? And then they feed that programmatically. They feed that to the different uh, hiring managers or the engagement managers within the organization. So that is that is definitely a powerful idea. And again, goes back to the notion that of how work is getting done today. Any uh, substantial body of work that's done, done in a corporation today is performed by a work extended workforce that mm-hmm. comprises of employees and uh, a collection of non-employees. And so, if you go back to it, something like uh, how movies are made today, uh, when, when you, and a great uh, a big movie is made, the the employees there are employees of the studio that are involved in that movie making uh, process. But then most of the other folks who are working on that movie are just talented people from different walks of life who come together for this project, build a great movie, finish the project, and move on to the next project. And that's and- how work is going to be done in the future. And move on. Thank you. And I have to move on. Guess what? We only have four minutes left till the end of the show, and I need about 30 seconds to close. So it's time for our predictions round. I'm going to ask you to look into the crystal ball. Ben Dollar at Deloitte, I'm going to give you 90 seconds to wrap up on predictions. Can you look ahead to the year 2020, or how far into the future would you like to share your predictions, Ben, on changes to the talent ecosystem best practices? Go ahead. 2020 works for me. I think as we're seeing companies get larger and larger, companies are just huge now in a way that they've never been. Um, Customer demands are are getting more rapid, and and the need for change is more rapid. So the big challenge that I see ahead for for companies is balancing being very large, being global, with being able to be quick and responsive. And the way that I, I see that pushing them is a, a much broader application of this uh, ecosystem, much more flexibility in the ecosystem, more use of analytics to figure out what the optimal combinations of workers is um, so that they're able to bring the right groups of people together quickly to respond to changing needs. I think that's the big challenge on the table, and, and I'm excited to see uh, everybody try to address that. Thank you very much, and I can give 90 seconds as well to Arun Trinavasan. Arun, predictions, how far out in the future can you go? So first, I'll go back to, to I go back in time, and I feel like this is an age-old problem. So the, the fundamental problem will remain in, as it is in 2020, and effective talent management will still be a competitive, competitive differentiator. Now, what's likely to change, and, and I agree with Ben here, and is, is that uh, – the, the parameters around the problem are likely to change, and, and so we talked about mobility earlier, and there are other constraints that exist in businesses today. And those those constraints are likely to change in 2020, and we really have no way of knowing what it's going to be. But what's important to remember is that the jobs of 2020 have not been defined yet. So there is no way to start planning precisely for that, except to take the approach where you want to build a flexible, nimble organization that says, I'm ready to evolve as as the market demands and as the business dictates. Okay. Thank you very much. Uh, you know what? I I can't believe the time has flown. 
Usually we have three panelists. We only had two, but both of you are so articulate and you are so prepared to come to the table and explore this. I express my great appreciation to both of you. And I want to do a shout out to a gentleman who has been tweeting his tootsies off for the past hour. It's Dean Pappas. Dean has been asking all kinds of questions, some of which have been answered and some of which are spinning off from our conversation. But Ben Dollar and Arun Srinivasan, if you want to go to hashtag SAP radio and take a look at Dean Pappas's comments, you might want to answer them after the show, anything that didn't get covered. Guess what? It's time for my predictions, and I've got about a minute to do them. Today is Tuesday, so it's double header day here on SAP Game Changers Radio. I'll be back at 12 noon Eastern with another episode of Industry Cloud Trends with Game Changers. Tomorrow is another double header day. I'll be back with Coffee Break with Game Changers, 11 a.m. Eastern, and in the afternoon, another live edition. We're doing Mining and the Internet of Things, Revolutionizing an Industry on IoT with Game Changers. At 3 p.m. tomorrow. And Thursday morning, we'll be back with another edition of Innovating Innovation with Game Changers. So that's all for now. I want to do a special shout out to Ben Dollar at Deloitte. Thank you so much, Ben. A great pleasure speaking with you. Ditto to Arun Srinivasan at Field Glass at SAP. Arun, great insights. Thank you so much. And to our series sponsors, Becky Weber, Lindsay Nelson, working very hard at SAP, our tweeter, Dean Pappas, and Brad and the Business Channel team. And a special mazel tov to Brad, who was getting married this Friday. And Brad, I don't know. I think going steady is a better alternative, but we'll see how it all works out. I'm Bonnie D. Graham. Thank you so much for joining us. Here's my call to action. Fasten your seatbelt. What are you waiting for? Go out and be a game changer today. I'll be back in one hour with Industry Cloud Trends with Game Changers. Bye-bye. Thanks again for tuning in to Transforming Your Business with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run business is run SAP. To keep the conversation going, tweet your questions and comments to Twitter, hashtag SAPRADIO. Please join host Bonnie D. Graham again on Tuesdays at 7 a.m. Pacific, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Business Channel. We wish you a positively game-changing week.